Well, good morning. Would you join me in opening up our Bibles to Mark chapter 10? Mark 10 is page 846 on a blue uh, pew Bible, if you want to follow along there. We have three more weeks of passages in Mark 10 that will take us through Labor Day weekend. Um, It's hard to believe, as it is every summer, that we're winding down, heading towards uh, the fall, and we're in this stretch of our church calendar where a lot of our staff are taking a couple weeks off, heading into uh, kind of the fall when things really kick up back again. A lot of our I know uh, people are traveling as well, and so we have these kind of three-week stretch where we really simplify the service, um, but simple does not mean any less meaningful, and I just appreciate Dan and Genevieve leading us in just kind of an unplugged worship um, where it's an, almost an opportunity where if it's less produced, it almost magnifies the name of the Lord even more that I really appreciate in a way that changes it up. So, um, and, and also, along with that, having all of the kids uh, with us in the service these next three weeks is just going to be um, a special time as well. And I always just feel like I have to say, like we, we all can understand that things will be a little more squirmy maybe in the sanctuary, maybe a little more chirpy, and we're totally fine with that. We're okay with having kind of the kids in here and what might come along uh, with that. And I encourage you to have that mentality as well. But uh, as we kind of go through this gospel of Mark, we are in the stretch, and we have been for several weeks, uh, where Jesus is in this mode of really just having this increased focused desire on teaching his disciples and what it looks like to, to live in the world and see this world in such a way that reflects, uh, I'm a follower of Jesus, right? We're all going to wake up tomorrow morning, and we're going to go about our separate ways, and we're going to be in this world, and, and the question is going to be, What is the lens through which we're going to see this world? What's the lens through which we're going to see ourselves in this world? How are we going to relate to other people in that world? Like, there's just really practical questions that Jesus is taking this time on his road to Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified. He's trying to tell his disciples that they have no idea what is going on when he's saying that, but he's just trying to prepare them. What's it going to look like once I'm gone to be my follower? Right? This morning I woke up and I put on contact lenses. The reason why I did that is not to change the world around me, it's that so I will see the world in a more increased focused way. Whether or not I put my lenses on has no regard on what the world's going to do, but it's going to change everything about how I see the world. And that's the same thing when you think about following Christ, that the world, whether or not you follow Christ or not, is not going to change very much. But the lenses through which you see that world, you relate in the world, you see yourself is going to be totally changed. So Jesus is trying to teach his disciples, what's this look like? What's it look like to do this? And at the core of this, there's this kind of ethic that a disciple of Jesus Christ is transformed from the inside out. A new heart that Jesus gives you by his grace through faith that leads to these new desires and these new motives, which then leads to new thoughts and new words and new actions. Christianity is never outside in. It's never, hey, act this way, and once you act this way, maybe you'll get a new heart. It's always, every time, inside out. God does something in you, and because he's done something in you, now that changes the way you live. And so as they're walking, they're coming across these different life situations, different interactions that Jesus is using to then jump off that and teach his disciples something about it, something about the kingdom of God especially the 12 most closely tied to him, 12 disciples, also referred to as 12 apostles. And we've seen all throughout this gospel, man, they're just struggling. Mark is, 
more brutal with the disciples and shedding them in a more brutal light than any other gospel writers. They never really look good in the Gospel of Mark. They're just struggling. They're struggling to grasp this kingdom ethic that's so different from the world that they have been living with them. But Jesus, as he's with us, he's just patient. He just keeps teaching, trusting in the slow work of God. How many of us just need to trust in the slow work of God in our lives, in the lives of those around us? But there's one thing that they really seem to be struggling with, and we're going to see it again and again. We have seen it. We're going to see it this morning. We're going to continue to see it in following weeks. The disciples are consumed with status, their own status, where they stand, but also in the way they view and treat others. Okay, so those who have a high status, based on what culture says, they want to be around them. They, they, they want to be around that group that, that everybody else sees in high regard. And then those who have low status by culture standards, I mean, the disciples just not really not, don't want anything to do with them. They kind of mow over them, move on from them. And so Jesus is going to just gently but relentlessly chip away at this. And get this point across that how we view ourselves, how we view others, it's not based on how valuable the the world says you are. It's based on how God sees you, how God values you, and it's central to this theme of discipleship. And it just fascinates me. One of the things I love about the Bible is that we're here 2,000 years later, and you know what we're still consumed by? Status more than we would like to admit. Like, this is such a vital thing for me to grasp, for the people of God to grasp, that we are consumed with how we stand in relation to others. And how many of our decisions, we make so many decisions day in and day out, how many of those decisions, if we're willing to admit it, are shaped by, how does this make me look And how am I going to relate to others based on how they look? And I just think we know this. We know this from experience, but then there's study after study that shows this. So real quick, um, from experience. So something maybe we can all relate with. Let's say you're having somebody over your house or apartment this week. Somebody for a meal, a cup of coffee, just to hang out. Here's the reality. The amount of effort you will put into that meal and the amount of effort you will put into cleaning the house is probably linked to how important you think the person coming over is. One thing Rochelle and I have set out to do since entering ministry is to just get into a rhythm where we are regularly having people in our home for meals, of just getting to a habit of just throwing an extra plate or two onto the table a few times a month. And, and what we constantly need to remind each other of is that the house does not need to be spotless. Like we don't want it to be dangerous for people to walk through our house, all right? But we, we, it doesn't need to be pristine. Our house is not pristine, ever. And, and depending on who it is, it doesn't need to be a five-course meal that they're going to remember for the rest of their life because the point is not impressing. The point is not us looking really good. It's, it's just sharing a meal together and, and having just good, edifying conversation. Now, if you're gifted in hosting, like, praise God for that. Like, knock the lights out every single time. Like, we just want to have people over and just have good conversation. But inevitably, there's always that piece in there. Depending on who it is, I want things to be a certain way. I want things to look a certain way. I might take a little bit more time addressing something before somebody comes, but depending on who it is. And I just need to be honest about that. What's driving that? What's underneath that? What, what's, what's driving, really driving that? And it's, it's status. It's wanting to be perceived in a certain way. 
And then studies confirm this to be true. Maybe, maybe you've heard this one that really shows status is, is prominent in our minds and hearts. There was a famous study done by the Journal of Economic Behavior. Widespread study. It gave people two choices. It said you could earn $50,000 and everybody around you earns $25,000. This was done in the 90s, all right? Or you could earn $100,000, but everybody else around you earns $200,000. What would you rather have? The majority of people chose the former. I'd rather make half as much if it meant I made twice as much as everybody else. It just shows that even beyond wealth, a lot of ways, I just, I care about not how much I make, but how much I make in relation to others. And there's this pride that comes with status. And it can be such a major obstacle that keeps us from living the way Jesus has intended us to do. And so the, the, the passage is going to show us this morning, it matters how you see the world. It matters how you see yourself and the people around you. And the two stories that we're going to see will expose this in such a significant way Jesus will use it to teach his disciples this kingdom ethic that the first, they're going to be last. And the last, they're going to be first. So let's go. Mark chapter 10. We're going to start with verses 13 through 16. And they were bringing the children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them into his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. We're going to see these kind of three interactions, so very um, creative outline. First, we have Jesus and the children. Jesus and the children. Jesus is down in the region of Judea, if you remember from last week, southern Israel. It's the first time Mark is talking about him down in this region as he heads towards Jerusalem. The majority of his ministry was always done in Galilee, which is the northern region of Israel. So these are kind of new crowds. Maybe they had gone and traveled elsewhere to see them, but this is the first time Jesus is in their region. So the crowds are swelling again. People... Um, are bringing, constantly bringing others to them to hear him teach, to lay hands on them, to heal, to bless. For many, this is the first time they're seeing him in person, and so everybody's wanting to get in front of them. And the disciples at this point, they see themselves as the gatekeepers, right? The ones who are closest to Jesus, who get to filter who gets access to Jesus because of their status, right? To be able to control this, who gets time with Jesus, who doesn't. And so some people are bringing children, young children to Jesus, and the disciples are like, what are you guys doing around here with them? Do you see all these crowds? See all these important people? You think, you think he has time for children? Come on, get with the program here. Jesus is a big deal. There's all kinds of important people that need the one-on-one -on -one time. The children, come on, send them off. So he's rebuking people, whether they're parents or aunts or uncles, um, older siblings, for bringing these young children. And then we see Mark use a word from Jesus for the first time. Jesus was indignant at them. And so I think it, it, it's worth talking a little bit about um, kind of first century culture because here's where history matters. And first century and 21st century, we are far different in the way that we value and cherish children. The reality is, if you know your history, for the majority of history until kind of recently modern times, children were not 
really valued that much. They weren't cherished that much. And, and there's a few reasons. One main one, it's not a good reason, but one main reason is that there was a high mortality rate amongst children in the first century. One in three babies did not live to see the age of one in the first century. 33% would not live to be the age of one. Compare that to today in the U.S., that rate is less than 1%. Actually, less than a half percent of babies that don't see to the age of one. And even, like, I love historical biographies, so even if you go back 100 years and you read about presidents, you read about prominent people, I mean, they'd have a lot of kids, half of them wouldn't make it. And, like, you read it and you're like, how could they, I mean, that's just crushing. It seems crushing, but they kind of just did it. And, like, and there, there was definitely grief, but they always would get past it. And because there was this mentality that you cannot get emotionally attached to kids because they might not make it. And so especially amongst the Greeks and, and the Romans and the Greek culture that were just high intellectual, that just, they, they really had to teach themselves to just emotionally detach from children. Don't get too close to them because they might not make it. And then not only that, but if you read kind of Greek philosophy around this time, um, children were often viewed as a, just a liability until they could actually contribute to society. So that they just weren't really that important. There were some really dark things that happened back then in, in relation to children, just kind of casting them off. And so they were low, not only in age, but in status and importance. And so that's why the disciples that are immersed in this culture, we all live in a culture around us, a subculture that inevitably kind of seeps into our mindsets. They're surrounded by this, where nobody really values children. So the children are coming to Jesus, they're going, get them away from here. They just don't need to be here. There's more important people Jesus needs to see. Don't waste our time. And Jesus is indignant. He's furious. The only time in the ESV that word comes across of Jesus' anger, righteous anger. He says, let the children come to me, for such belongs the kingdom of God. He says, fellas, kingdom ethics runs countercultural to worldly ethics. So bring me the children. They are worthy of my time. They are image bearers, uniquely created in the image of God. And so the way the world sees them, it's not the way I see them, and it's not the way you should see them either. And then he says something, I think the most important verse, one of the most important verses in the Gospel of Mark. He says this, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. We need to sit on that. That's, mad. That's a huge statement. It's hitting on something really important here as it pertains to the, to the nature of the kingdom of God and how do you get in? How do you find yourself in the kingdom of God? He doesn't say you have to earn your way into the kingdom of God. He doesn't say you've got to find it and find your way into the kingdom of God. He, doesn't, he says this. He says whoever receives like a child will enter the kingdom of God. And if you don't, you're not going to enter it. The kingdom is received. A gift to be received. And he's helping his disciples understand what it is to have faith. True faith. Faith that saves our soul. Faith that leads you to follow Christ. Faith that goes for eternity. You know how you have it? You receive it. Your status, it's going to get you nothing beyond this world. 
your standing in society, what others are going to say about you, it's going to do nothing for you in the kingdom of God. There's one way in, and it's to receive the gift of Jesus Christ by faith. And isn't this like a brilliant word picture he has? Like he's got a little kid in his arms. Like because kids, especially younger kids, like not only are they full of this like hope and expectation and optimism, but kids are really good at receiving, aren't they? Like do you have to convince a kid as he gets older what it is to receive a gift? It's like, no, I don't want any of that. You never see that. All right, so I have a son who's going to turn four next week, and all he does in the first four years of his life is receive food and shelter and clothing and gifts. And you know what? He has yet to contribute any income to our family. (laughs) Everything he has is received. And and I don't come home at night from work, and I don't sit him down and be like, Caden, what'd you do to contribute to our family's income today? Did you just sit around all day? Like, well, what did you do? Like, did, did, were you out searching for jobs? Were you out hitting the streets? Were you trying to make some money? Like, what did you do today? I don't come home frustrated with him that all he's done is receive. Why? Because I'm his father, and I want to be the one to provide for him. I want to be the one where he can receive, and I want him to do it with gratitude, and I want them to, to shape the way he sees the world and, and has appreciation, but I'm not coming home frustrated that he hasn't earned something that day. Like, what a great word picture for us. Is that the way you see God in the way that he sees you? He's not frustrated with you that you're not earning something for his favor. He wants you to receive it. It's the way he values you. It's a gift to be received. And this is what it looks like to gain entry into the kingdom of God. It's nothing you're going to do that's going to force his hand. And it's only he or she that can receive the grace of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ that will gain entry. And that story, those few verses are really important for this next story after it, that we all know this one coming up. If you have any church background, it's a very popular one, but it's generally just seen in isolation. But let's go to this story because it's very strategically located. Let's go verses 17 to 22. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, "'Good teacher,' What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And you know the commandments. Do do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This story, this interaction, it's often talked about as Jesus and the rich young ruler. And the title for that man is really a compilation of all the gospel accounts. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story. In Mark, we found out he's got great possessions. He's wealthy. In Matthew, we were told he was young. 
And Luke tells us he was a ruler. So you put all those pieces together, and that's how we get the saying, Jesus and the rich young ruler. But, but often, as I just said, this, this story is seen at in isolation as just between Jesus and the rich young man. But, but in reality, this is part of a bigger discussion that Jesus is having with his disciples, showing them what it's like to live and see in the kingdom of God. And so there's this deeper, fuller meaning when we read it in context of what we just read before it. Because you know what the first thing to notice about this story is? It's what you didn't see. You know what you didn't see? Any of the disciples trying to filter this guy out. None of them said, hey, we, we don't have time for you, man. Like, we, we got, there's a lot of people here, there's a lot going on. Like, you gotta, they weren't, they're not being gatekeepers to this guy. You know why? He's got high status. Everybody knows the rich, young ruler. Everybody knows how much he makes and what he does. He was well-known. He was on Israel's Forbes top 30 under 30 list. Right? He was doing big things already. But the interaction becomes interesting because I, I usually come into the story with a little bit of a preconceived notion. I have in my, in my mind that this guy was some cocky hotshot. Right? Just kind of arrogant, just kind of coming to Jesus, acting like he's all that. But if you read closely, that's not what's happening. He actually approaches him in the right way. He runs up to Jesus, something that first century men would not do because you had to hold up your cloak and you had to show your legs, which was not seen as dignifying in the first century, so nobody ran. But he's running towards Jesus, and he kneels in front of him. How many guys do you think this guy kneels in front of? Probably not many. Kneels in front of him. We're not sure what he's a ruler of, but he's a ruler of something. But either way, he goes low, and he addresses Jesus with this affirming phrase, good teacher. And then he asks a genuine question, what do I got to do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And we'll see in a minute. His question is misguided, but I think it's still honest. I think it was an honest question that he wanted to know. He was about to go on a trip, but he needed to know this before. Last week we saw the Pharisees approach Jesus and ask him a question about divorce, but we talked about that was not a question to engage. That was a question to expose but that's not the case here. I think he's genuinely wanting to know. You've just come into this region. You're talking, talking a lot about the kingdom of God. You're talking about eternal life. What do I got to do to get it? Maybe he's new to Jesus' teaching. Maybe he hasn't heard how the access was. But again, he's about to head out. He's like, I can't leave before I know this. So I got to run up to him. I got to really find out. He's desperate to know the answer to this question. What goes beyond this life? How do I get there? You know, it made me think, um, we're just in a really interesting time that we're living in, right? We're in such a distracted age. And we all know we can go long periods of time without ever having to give any real serious thought to big questions. To things like eternity and things like purpose and things like God and salvation where, where we don't really have to think about our souls or where this life leads because there's so much we can distract ourselves with. And I think we can just go long periods of time, just distract, 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 where we are largely blinded to these thoughts. But here's the thing. You might be able to like cast them off and punt it down the road, but eventually you're going to have to confront them. And with the way life works in time, sometimes when you least expect it, they pop up. Where life occasionally forces us all to consider what is out there. 
What is coming once our lives come to an end? What do I need to do? And you know what's interesting? The the more I'll kind of talk to people and, and read about it, generally the older you get, the more this question starts to pop up. Because you have experienced more of life. And you have seen the, 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 the pitfalls and the peaks and the valleys and, and, and been on the mountaintops and been just in the pit. And, and yet you, you get through all of it and you're like, I still got, like, where is this all going? Is this all what it is? I thought there would be more by now, but it's not. So now what, what, what really is out there? And, and for some, that could be a crippling, like paralyzing thought. And for others, and I'd say even for most of us, that can just be like a passing thought. We're like, whoa, that was really weird. I'm not sure. But okay, let's go back to distraction. Let's go back to filling our minds. Let's go back to the next, next Netflix series and binge watch the next 12 hours because that was weird. I don't want that to happen again. But the reality is everybody's going to confront it. Something happened in this man's life, rich, young, successful, that he still had this angst in his heart that he just had to find Jesus and ask him, what do I got to do? to get eternal life. And Jesus finds this question intriguing. And he goes, whoa, why do you call me good? You see, the word good, that word good, we use it now for everything. Good this, good that, great, good, everything's awesome. Back then, that word was not used. It was only really reserved for God. And Jesus says that. He goes, whoa, wait a minute. Why are you calling me good? You, you know only God is good. And Jesus is just like feeding into the irony of this. He's like, brother, you don't even know the half of it, of how good I am. And then look where Jesus takes it. He says, you know the commandments. You're you're smart, sharp guy. You've learned it since you were a kid. And then he proceeds to list the final six of the Ten Commandments. Not in order, but he goes through the final six of the Ten Commandments if you know about the Ten Commandments, they were instituted, right? God gave them to Israel. God gave them to Moses to give to Israel um, on the mountaintop, and they're really split into two sections. There's this vertical section and horizontal section. So the first uh, four commandments are between God and man, the relationship between God and man. And then the, the, the last six are between man and man, man and woman, woman and woman together. So you have this horizontal, how you love others, and you have this vertical, how you love God. But he gives them just the horizontal commandments. He says, you know them. And the man says, I've kept them. All, all those things you say, all those things, the way I treat other people, ask around. There's a crowd here. They can attest. They know me. I do good things. I'm a good person. I'm high in status. Everyone here can attest to it. I've done it all. And yet he's still longing for it, still searching. And Jesus looks at him. And you know Mark doesn't give a lot of detail, right? But here he does. He looks at him and loved him. It's kind of a stunning line. This man was tragically misguided but he's genuinely struggling, and Jesus' compassion, again, how, much, how many times we talk about Jesus' compassion in the Gospel of Mark? Week after week, all different situations. It's not limited to one group of people. He's not just compassionate against those who are sick, not just for children, not just for those who are broken, but he's even compassionate for the rich young ruler. Status did not matter to Jesus. He did not care how much you had because all people are image bearers. If there's one thing the church we need to just 
tell ourselves in today's culture where everything is so divisive and everything is so hateful, all people are image bearers. Do we get that? Do we understand that? That Jesus' compassion was not based upon just a certain group of people. It was for all people. Regardless of how the world sees people, the people of God should be people of compassion. And Jesus looked at him and he loved him because he was hurting. Here's a sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus says to him, brother, you still lack one thing. All those things you've done, you still lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And then come follow me. The man was crushed by this. He walks away sad. Mark tells us why. Because he had great wealth. So this is important. Jesus initially addressed the final six commandments, but now he addresses the first. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. This guy was a great guy. He was faithful to others around him, but wealth was this man's God. Wealth was where he put his ultimate trust, his hope, his joy, his dependence. Wherever you find your primary purpose, wherever you find your primary identity, there you will find your God. And Jesus knew this about him, and he exposed it in his life by telling him this is what he needs to do. He knew in this man that nothing surpassed his love for money and possessions, and he was unwilling to part with it. And this is where it connects to the story with the children. Eternal life into the kingdom of God, it cannot be earned. It can only be received. What can I do to inherit eternal life? The answer, in short, is nothing. You can't. The only way is if it will be received with open hands. The only way you can receive it with open hands is if there's nothing else already in them. If we surrender everything in our life except that one thing, we've surrendered nothing. And the point in here is not that, okay, if you really want to be a Christian, everyone's got to go sell all they have in order to be a Christian. The point is that everybody has that one thing. Everybody has that one thing that they need to surrender in order to put God first. Now, listen, I think we could go down the route about talking about wealth because you know where we are. We're in Bergen County. We're in 2018 where money and materialism and degrees of wealth consumes many of us. That is true. That probably should be noted for many. We don't realize how rich we are because we're only comparing ourselves with everybody else who's richer around us and how much the love of money can shape us and how much the Bible speaks into that. And for this man, it was wealth, and maybe that is for you, but it doesn't have to just be wealth. You could be really wealthy and a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And you could have no money at all and be the most greedy person in the room. But the reality is, all of us have one thing. Maybe it is status. Maybe it is even a spouse or a good friend. Maybe it's something else. Good things, good gifts that make terrible gods. But whatever that one thing that we're prone to say, God, this is off limits. If you want me to follow you, you can't take this from me. If we surrender everything except that one thing, we've surrendered nothing. 
because it reveals that we already have a God in our lives. And the Bible is clear, you can ultimately only serve one God in your life. Jesus exposes this in the man, he exposes this in us, not to make us miserable, not to rob us of joy, not to be like, you have too much money and you're too happy, I don't want you happy, I don't like my people happy. That's not what a Christian is. But he knows that as image bearers who were created for his glory, our true, lasting joy can only be found in him. And we sung it this morning. He's enough. Like, when Christ is all you have is the moment you realize Christ is all you need. He's enough. The only thing that will make us truly miserable in the end will be choosing another God of this world over him. And so the most loving thing Jesus could do to this man right here, as harsh as it may have seemed, the most loving thing that God can do to us, as harsh as it may seem, is saying this exact thing. So let's see how this all ties together, verses 23 through 31. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Well, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last first. Third and final interaction is now Jesus and his disciples. We find the, the moment with the children, the moment with the rich young ruler, it just wasn't about them. It was using those interactions to come back and teach his disciples. He uses these to, to teach them something so vital, so critically important about the kingdom of God. Remember, these men are going to be at the front lines at the start of the church when Jesus is gone, and they need to grasp this, not just for themselves, so they can teach it faithfully. The rich young ruler walked away, and Jesus in despair just says, man, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And their response is really telling. Their response is not just silently nodding their heads going, yeah, you're you're right. They're, they're, They're not excitedly affirming his statement like, preach it, brother. So true. They are exceedingly astonished. They're shocked. It goes everything against in their worldview. A large aspect of the Jewish ethic, I think we still see this in prosperity gospels throughout the country and the world, is that wealth did not mean that it was hard for you to enter the kingdom of God. That wealth and status meant God was happy with you. It means you had his favor. It was this confidence that since I'm wealthy, I must be doing things the right way. And now Jesus is saying how difficult it's going to be those who have great wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And they're like, what? That is literally exactly the opposite of how they saw the world, of how they saw the way God viewed people. 
if that guy can't be saved with all he has, with all the good that he does, well then who can be saved, Jesus? None of us have a shot. This is crazy. And Jesus knows he's got a moment here. In their raw reaction, he says, with man, it is impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. This is the connection that pulls it all together. This whole discipleship discourse in the middle of Mark. Status in the world is not what matters most in God's eyes. What matters most is whether you will receive the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so eternal life, the kingdom of God, it's always first what Christ has done and not what you do. Will you receive Him as your Savior for all your sin and all your brokenness by faith? So let me just ask a question. If you profess to be a follower of Christ in here, if you profess to be a Christian, this is vitally important. When, when somebody asks you, well, why? How do you know? Well, where's your confidence in that? I wonder, where do you begin your answer? It's going to be really telling. Does your answer begin with, well, I go to church. I, I, I even give away some of my money. I care for others. I'm faithful to my family, and I'm faithful at my job. And, and, and like those are all great things, but those are not great basis for faith. The only answer that will stand is first, well, how do I know? Because Christ has come and lived a life that I couldn't. And by His grace, free gift giving up his life for me so that by his death and resurrection, I am deemed righteous for all of eternity. How do I know? This is what Christ has done. And that's a gift that I received. And so maybe you're, you're a little bit of a natural skeptic, like I often am, and you go, oh, okay, so that means the way we live means nothing at all. Everything's meaningless. We're not accountable for our actions. Of course that's not what it means. The gospel does not deem life meaningless. It's a transformation that happens from the inside out. For those who receive faith, who, who place their faith first in Jesus Christ, as their only God over and above all things, that transforms your life to now transforming your desires and what you want out of life, how you see yourself, your motivations, your words, your thoughts, your actions, where now your life becomes a sacrifice that's what Peter was saying. He's like, he, you know, Peter's freaking out right now. He's like, Jesus, we left everything to follow you. And you notice what, like, that, that is wealth-related. Because you know what Jesus' response, he says, you've left brothers and fathers and sisters and mothers and lands. Every person, man in the first century, was, they're going into the family business. And if they leave the family to follow Christ, they're no longer in the family business. There's nothing really lucrative in them in following Christ. And Peter's like, we gave it all. We've sacrificed everything. And Jesus is going, brother, that's a good thing. But the basis of your salvation is not because you gave it up. I saved you. And now you can sacrifice your life because I've already saved you. And that's what our lives do become. It does make a difference. It does change the lenses through which you see the world. It has to. 
And our lives become this life of sacrifice where we pour ourselves out for him and for others. And at the core of that is that we're not consumed by status in a world that is consumed by status. But now our lives are shaped by how um, we can serve others, how we can pour ourselves out for the least of these, how we can love and be compassionate and have courage standing on truth because we live our lives based upon how God sees us, not how the world sees us. Fully loved, fully redeemed, and made brand new. We sacrifice for him in life because he first sacrificed his life in death. And now we live to him and for him and through him, and he receives all the glory. So let me just give you like a takeaway point. Where does your status shape your joy in your life in this world? You're going to wake up tomorrow morning, and you're going to start making decision after decision after decision like we do every single day. How much of that is shaped upon how you're going to be perceived by the world around you versus how God sees you? It's so freeing to know that your status in this world is not what gets you into eternal life. It's what you do with Jesus Christ. So press on. Live risk-filled lives for the gospel. Be generous with everything you have. Be reckless in your love for God and for others because you're already secure in him and he's worth it. Let's pray.